This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Late Boomers, our podcast guide to creating your third act with style, power, and impact. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Join us as we bring you conversations with successful entrepreneurs, entertainers, and people with vision who are making a difference in the world. Everyone has a story, and we'll take you along for the ride on each interview, recounting the journey our guests have taken to get where they are, inspiring you to create your own path to success. Let's get started. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. Welcome to our latest episode of Late Boomers. Today we have as our guest, Guy Morris, who retired from a 36-year leadership career with Fortune 100 software, high-tech, and global energy. And he's been a published songwriter for Disney Records, a screenplay writer for Sojourn Entertainment, a patented investor, a Coast Guard charter captain, a paddy driver and adventurer, diver, I'm sorry, and now an author and publisher of intelligent, well-researched thrillers. And I'm Mary Elkins. That is a lot of exciting stuff that you've been doing since his 2021 since his 2021 debut as an indie author. Guy has released three pulse-pounding thrillers inspired by true stories, actual technologies, true global politics, and history. His books have been recognized with many awards, and Guy has also moderated or served as a panelist for the Greater Los Angeles Writers Conference and is also a member of the Pacific Northwest Writers Association and the International Thriller Writers Association. Welcome, Guy. We're really excited Thank to have you. you. Thank you, Mary. Thank you, Kathy. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. We want to find out a little bit about your background first and how you ended up on this very interesting journey. I have, I, I, I've been blessed to have an extremely diverse life. And from my, my journey actually started as a homeless runaway at age 13. Um, I was on the streets of LA for several months before I went home long enough to get a GED at age 15 when I left home for good. Um, I was functionally illiterate. Uh, I had to work you know, really tough jobs, digging ditches and driving trucks, produce trucks and, and whatever I could do to basically feed myself. I worked alongside migrant workers for a while to, to survive. Um, by age 19, um, I was already married, which was a, a, a poor decision. Um, and a father. Um, but through what I could only describe as a miracle, and I won't go into all the details, I was given an opportunity to go back to college, where I was terrified. Um, but I was determined. I didn't want my past to find my future. Um, there's a line in a movie that came out several years ago, about a decade ago, with Heath Ledger called A Knight's Tale. And there was a line in there that really resonated with me and where he said he was a basically a pauper kid who was a uh, surf to a knight. The knight died. He tried to then pretend to be a knight because he wanted to change his stars. And I think that defined a lot of what I want. I wanted to change my stars. Wow. Um, I graduated undergrad um, in spite of getting sick with valley fever with two, multiple degrees. I was at the top of the dean's list. 
and I got a, not only was I accepted into Harvard MBA program, I was given a full scholarship in Arizona for the same program, which I lived and stayed at the time. And all of that was based on the fact that I had developed a macroeconomic model that outperformed the Federal Reserve and pretty much every nation, every bank and university in the nation, because I was the first one to prove the link between technology productivity and the effects on the economy. That's... That got me a job at IBM. And from there, I just, it was, I developed a reputation as being a thought leader and an innovator. I was at the leading edge of all kinds of trends, like bringing uh, desktop computing into the to the enterprise um, at a time when a computer cost $8,000 and you only saw them on the VP's desk. And when you asked the VP what they were using it for, it says, I don't even know what to use it for. I was just told to get it. <laughs> Um, I, I, I developed, you know, all types of models. I became an expert in computer modeling. Um, I, I led the uh, innovation into building, uh, using the internet for global communications. At the time, I had a team that was on five different continents and we needed to communicate frequently. Uh, I um, innovated against an early stage of artificial intelligence called expert systems. Uh, I was there at Microsoft when cloud computing came on the forefront. And so... And now I specialize my a lot of my books specialize in artificial intelligence and the philosophical, the realistic, not the sci-fi 50 years from now where it becomes evil and takes over the world. But what are the evils? What are the dangers that we face right now? Well, let's uh, talk and- about AI. I'd love to hear more about it. And I know our audience would because everybody's talking about it. Tell us a little bit about the benefits and risks of it. Well, there are a lot of benefits, and I'm not, I, I think sometimes as a thriller writer, I tend to focus on the risks because, you know, the main job of thrillers to say, gee, what could go wrong? <laughs> um, but, you know, there are a lot of benefits. I mean, we're seeing it. It's going to affect us in healthcare. It's going to affect the pharmaceuticals and materials sciences. Uh, it's going to um, uh, make an impact in terms of education and being able to um, customize education for uh, um, for children with learning disabilities. Um, there are it's uh, already taken over a lot of functions in in cybersecurity, um, uh, stock market transactions. There are a, a ton of positive things that we can do with AI. And so the the challenge that we're going to have with AI is that we're not necessarily paying attention to the negative consequences and ramifications because. Most of the time, these companies are too busy trying to make money. And we're spending tens of billions of dollars every year on artificial intelligence development. And we have to step back and realize, and part of my corporate experience has helped me to realize that we're not, they're not doing that for the good of humanity. They're, they're doing that because they want to create a, a new way of, of creating revenues. Hmm. And those revenues are going to be paid by somebody. Now, Morgan Chase came out with a study about two weeks ago that basically indicated that that same transition will not only generate enormous unheard of profits for the companies that are really going to be the winners, but it's going to displace up to 300 million workers worldwide by 2030. Wow. Wow. Journalists, um, uh, uh, legal support analysts, um, librarians. I mean, there's the the, the list of, uh, uh, of admin workers. The, the list of, of industries is about 20 different industries that will impact the most. And we're not prepared as a society for that transition. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there's other risks, which are, I, I would call basically I, I, I link to dark money and, poli- and, and geopolitics. 
So we know that that China is as good or, or more advanced than we are. China, you may have heard, has a AI system that basically tracks every citizen in, in, in the nation, follows them as they cross the street, watches their social media, watches what they watch on television, watches everything, and is using that to basically create good citizen credits so that if you're caught smoking on a train, that can basically count against you as a good citizen. And ultimately, they can restrict what you buy, what you sell, uh, where you go. And they're using this to to control the population at a, at a level that has never been seen in all of history. What most people don't realize is China has already sold all or a portion of that system to over 40 countries. Mm. Oh, so um, we see artificial intelligence. Now, if, if I look at our own national security, um, the, the RAND Corporation submitted a study to the DOD about in 2020, I believe it was, and uh, along and among the top 10 national security risks that they listed for the DOD, uh, AI showed up on two of them. Ooh. One was AI data poisoning, and the other was AI, what they call ghosting. In other words, an AI making a mistake, believing that we're having a missile launched against us and automatically launches a retaliatory missile before somebody can intervene and stop the process. So we've, we've got a lot of things with AI that we're not learning. And one of the ways I kind of describe it is, of all of the functions we're teaching AI, we're not teaching AI things like legality, ethics, morals, um, uh, common sense, human human interactions, the things that took humans million, hundreds of thousands or millions of years of evolution to develop how we get along, you know, the things that, that, that allow us to basically be in a community uh, with and, and, and manage those elements of the community that are being disruptive. We're not giving AI the chance to evolve in that sense. It's intelligence, it's ramping up at an exponential rate. And so the lack of evolution combined with the lack of specific training and standards, there is no stand, common standard across any of the AI platforms as to how to moderate that behavior to protect hum humanity mm. uh, because they're too busy trying to be an expert on one system or another. Sounds a little like the Wild West. It really is. I mean, it. it, it and the, the faster it goes, the more the more competitive pressure there is on the other AI platforms to basically come out with something, even though it may not be fully ready yet. Yeah. And I recently saw an interview by the president of uh, OpenAI, which is the uh, released chat GPT in November, which is creating all of this oh. stir. Uh -huh. And... And he admits that they're not really fully ready. And his his answer to what if it does something wrong was, well, we'll try and go fix it then. <laughs> um, yeah. And we already have examples of chat GPT being used to write malicious um, software. Oh. And they really don't have the controls. We don't have... It's an exam, perfect example of our technology moving faster than our ability to control it. Um, and, and that because this is probably the most powerful technology, transformative technology, disruptive technology that we've ever had since even more so than nuclear weapons, the computer itself, the internet or cell, um, that lack of control could, could pose a lot of dangers. Well, to change the subject a little bit. Which for me as a thriller writer is great. I have all kinds of things to write about. 
<laughs> yeah, I want to change the subject a little bit and have you tell us how you use the power of research to infuse your fictional books with reality. Well, underneath every single one of my books, I love books where I'm I'm so intrigued. It gets me thinking so bad that I, I have to go look up whether what they said was true. Mm -hmm. If if that technology really exists, or if that history really happened, or if that um, conspiracy had any fact to it at all, and so Michael Crichton really opened the world's eyes to the the, the issues of DNA uh, splicing and DNA re uh, research and cloning, and he really said, no, "Well, let's take this to a little bit of an extreme, and contrast that with human hubris and pride and greed, and see what happens." And Dan Brown does the same thing, but he does more of a historical perspective, but he also deals with AI and viruses and other things. And, and um, the Da Vinci Code got the whole world trying to explore whether there was any truth to that tale. Mm -hmm. And there was some, and, and he was blatant that, the, hey, this is fiction. It's, um, but when you can blend enough fact with that fiction, to me, it creates an enticing tale that you just can't put down because you wanna know whether this is real. And so underneath every single one of my books is anywhere between a few years to up to a decade or more of research, trying to understand the factual foundation upon which I can build a fictional plot and fictional characters. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, all the uh, historical inferences um, change as we move forward with technology and, and time. That's correct. Yeah, and we learn different things about history that I, I think can become enlightening. The the link between history and mythology, right, and, and the and how that affects even affects our um, our uh, societies today, and <laughs> and and uh, in terms of our cultures and in terms of our belief systems and in terms of how we interact with each other. Yeah, um, the first of Cortez, which was my first book, I started telling you about it when we first started. Took me, it took me well over a decade to research, and and I was while I was still working, so I'd work a 16-hour days, I'd get to 11, 11:30 at night. My brain was just burned out with spreadsheets and powerpoints and policy statements and sales, you know, all of the stuff that you got to do, and and my, I had to switch my gears, and I would basically then stay up to about two o'clock in the morning doing research or writing, oh. and it started with a real story, and the story itself captivated me now and, and there's a storm a you said story. no this was the curse of cortez but there's oh. a captivating story behind each book so the one in curse of cortez was that in 1672 henry morgan the real henry morgan took 36 ships 2000 men to raid the city of panama because it was the richest city in the new world mm -hmm. to keep this story short he ultimately took back over 30 tons of stuff 600 slaves and it cheated every one of his men took almost the entire treasure on three ships and disappeared. Mm. Four months later, Morgan shows up with an empty ship and a basically half-starving crew, and he's arrested immediately by the British because he broke a peace treaty. Well, ultimately in England, he's a hero. So they knight him Sir Henry Morgan. They send him back to Jamaica as a lieutenant governor with a whole garrison of soldiers to get rid of piracy. Instead, he goes into this haunted, drunken, depressed debauchery. He abandons the billion-dollar treasure he killed thousands of people to get, and then he burns his logbooks before he died. 
Three years after he dies, the whole city of Port Royal sinks into the ocean, including his grave. At the time, the surviving locals said they had been cursed by Morgan. Mm -hmm. I was fascinated to find out two things. One, what happened to 30 tons of stuff, three ships, and 500 souls? By now, somebody should have found something. And in fact, somebody did, a guy named F.A. Mitchell Hedges in 1911. Uh, and that's a part of the story I won't go into right now. But two, what happened to Morgan that scared him, so, traumatized him so profoundly that he would give up a billion dollars that he had already captured? He already knew where it was. He just had to go get it. Um, wow. And that was the journey oh, that wow. took me way back in time. It took me through the island where it happened. It took me to an Inquisition massacre on that island, a 2,000-year pilgrimage that was ended by that massacre. That pilgrimage linked to the Mayan 5,000-year calendar and the Mayan creation myth. Wow. And the Mayan creation myth then tied to the Mayan end of the world prophecies. It was well, an epic experience for me to learn. It's an extraordinary. Tell us about the true story inspiration for Swarm. Oh, that's a fun one. Well, when I, while I was basically in, in my career as well, uh, I would always be doing research to try and understand how to leverage technology for the best of them, how to in, improve the enterprise with leading edge technologies. And I was constantly reading tech magazines and science magazines and history magazines of one type or another. And I ran across a very short article, it was Associated Press article, so I knew it wasn't just some dummy making something up without any checks. The article was just two paragraphs. It was one of those little tiny blurbs that you see in the back of a magazine. And it said that a program had escaped the Lawrence Livermore Laboratories at Sandia. And if anybody knew something, they should contact this professor or that FBI agent. I was floored. I cut that article out. I taped it onto my monitor and I looked at it every single day for months. And I kept thinking, that's amazing. Okay, so either... The guy at Associated Press made a big boo-boo, and it sh he should have said the program was lost or it was stolen or it was malfunctioned. But he said the program had escaped. And I kept thinking, okay, well, that implies intent. That implies some level of intelligence. That implied the ability to move itself and then go back and erase the log trails so that the developers didn't know we're gone. Now, that particular laboratory is a well-known NSA spy lab. They create the Suxnet virus. They did signals and cryptology. They're basically the number one cyber espionage group in the America. Wow. And so in my head, a spy program just escaped the NSA and they don't know how to find it. And I thought, this is so cool. So I spent months trying to actually figure out how, what technologies were involved and how that could, how that could be done. And then I said, okay, that's a, a stealth program. I said, what would NSA want a stealth program to do? And so I put on my James Bond Q kind of inventor hat. And I said, okay, well, I, was, I went through my whole data center and I went through my office and I tried to come up with a list of functions I thought it would do. Now, at this point, this was just me geeking out. I had a friend who was a um, independent film producer at the time, and he was a close friend. And I went to him with this story and he was fascinated as I was with this story. And we said, well, should we do a screenplay or should we do a television pilot? And I said, well, this is an internet based program. I was pretty positive. I said, let's create a webisode series. And so we did, we hired some out of work actors. I wrote scripts, we did the HTML, we created um, um, graphic sets for the program. Um, we, pr I, we produced um, about 12, 15 episodes of this. We won tons of awards. 
I had fans all over the world, including a, a fellow named Orbit at NASA.gov, who turned out to be the director of flight operations for the Houston Space Center, who taught the astronauts how to fly the space shuttle. Well, this is all before the book came out. This is all before the book came out. And this this event inspired the books. Um, two weeks before we got optioned by a studio, two weeks before the studio option was to come due, and they were either going to sign us into production or not, um, two FBI agents showed up at my meeting. Uh-huh. They were rather perturbed that I had figured out something they thought for sure was top secret. <laughs> and they they were I had to convince them and I said that I hadn't hacked into anybody to figure this out. I just figured it out from this and I showed them the article. Well, I thought at this point, I'm a geek, I'm tickled pink. The FBI showed up at my door, they just proved okay. I was right. It wasn't it, it's it went from theoretical me pulling baloney out of my out of the air to this is this is real. But my wife had a different reaction. Um, she was like, I'm she sure. told me, why are there two FBI agents sitting in my dining room? And what did you do, buddy? And who are you? Uh, I said, I'm just, just a geek with a big imagination. They didn't like my sense of humor at all. They wanted me to take the site down. I laughed at them. They ultimately went to the studio and killed the deal. I lost a ton of money. Uh, I had to tuck my tail between my legs, shut down the production, and go get a real job. I think it was at either a startup or Oracle. I can't remember at the time. But I never lost the curiosity of the, the technologies that I was implementing for commercial purpose. It started me really becoming in touch with how governments and others be, were using the same technology for um, less honorable purposes. Mm-hmm. And that... That program then became a character in my books named Sylvia, um, Sophisticated Language Virtual Intelligence Algorithm. And, uh, and, and that allowed me to really bring in a lot of different aspects a- into the story. Um, and in the books, the Sylvia has now reached a sentient level of, of, of intelligence. It's conscious. It's, it's as smart as human and has decoded end-time prophecy. And so that allows me to bring in geopolitics and religion and climate change and all kinds of other issues that the Sylvia is now correlating to things that should be prophetic. And none of the other characters are really particularly religious, so they're not really understanding what is going on here. So it really creates an interesting dynamic of characters going through this transition as Sylvia basically transitions itself to a super intelligence. That's great. And I have to assume then that there is a different true story inspiration for your thriller that's called The Last Ark. Absolutely. So that's part of, as part, it's part of the whole Sylvia espionage um, thriller series. But with that underlying theme of, of, of last uh, of prophecy, there's a lot of people that have a prophecy that there'll be a third Jewish temple. And, and I always thought that was rather unrealistic given the politics of the region, given that many of them believe that the Dome of the Rock is where the temple should be, which means they'd have to destroy that dome in order to build a temple, which would be hugely inadvisable. And so I, I, I was doing research, trying to figure out how to build this theme in, whether I should even build the theme in at all, right? And now most people, many people, not I'm not sure of most, but there's a lot of people that are aware of the uh, the Ark of the Covenant that's been in Ethiopia for 900 years. 
that ark actually left Israel along with Solomon's son, Menelik, and 500 priests around 2,600 years ago. They established a Jewish temple on Elephant Island in Egypt for several hundred years until the second century. And there's archaeology, there's scrolls, there's all kinds of history to confirm all that. When the Romans came in, they basically chased the ark. It went to Ethiopia, where it was in synagogues for several hundred years until the Templars came and moved it into Christian churches, starting with the rock-cut churches of La Bellum and others. Well, it's been in this one particular church called St. Mary's of Zion for 600 years now. And there's a man who basically dedicates his entire, it's often a separate chapel by itself, but there's a man who dedicates its whole life to basically guarding the ark. Only the guardian and the bishop are allowed to see it. And there have been National Geographic articles about their stories and videos about this. Graham Hancock went out to try and talk to the Guardian. There have been several other um, journalists trying to talk to the Guardian. And so that's fairly well documented. Now, a lot of people say, well, that's not the Ark made by Moses. And we'll get to that story in a second, which also is a cool story. But in 2000, what people don't know is that in January 21, an Ethiopian militia stormed the city of Axum, stormed this church that massacred 750 men, women, and children. The ark was stolen and sold on the black market. Wow. So Ooh. that creates the questions for me. Well, who would do that? Who would have the power? Who would have the money? Who would want that? Who would be willing to massacre all of those people to get this ancient Jewish relic that even had some questions about it? And that started me speculating and thinking about who in the region would, would, would do that. That also got me that same thread of research around the Ark uh, landed me on discovering a cop, the story of the Copper Scroll. Now, the Copper Scroll was found in the late 1960s uh, in one of the caves of Qumran, where all of the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Separate from the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were all in basically um, clay jars, this scroll was hidden behind a mud wall to basically stay hidden. It was basically a fake mud wall, and they found it by accident when they actually crumbled the wall by accident and found the scroll. It took archaeologists about 10 years before they could unravel this brittle copper scroll and clean it up enough where they could read it. And what they found was a treasure map of 64 locations where temple priests before Babylon invasion had hidden tens of tons of temple treasures. And in the 64th location is a second copper scroll that described where Jeremiah hid the Ark of Testimony made by Moses. Now, this is a story that was also then subscribed and put in the second book of Maccabees, which most of us don't really know about. But it, my research kind of led me to say, well, this, this story was verified in the Jewish tradition itself. Now, for 50 years, people have been looking all over Jerusalem for these locations and it describes 14 steps down from this location to this location. You'll find a, a slanted wall and it had by this arm, uh, mitzvah, you'll find dig down 12 feet. And it, all these distant locations and they, they found nothing. And they said, basically said, well, Jerusalem's been destroyed and rebuilt so many times. We'll never find any of this. About seven years ago, an American came along and actually was studying this and actually looking at a diagram of the ruins of Qumran itself, which is on the Dead Sea, and realized that every single one of these locations were underneath the ruins of Qumran. And so he went to Israel. He wrote a, he, uh, he wrote a book about this eventually, but he went to Israel. He, he talked to the Sanhedrin, which is the um, religious group that wants to build the Third Temple and convinced them that there was some merit to his analysis. 
And after he had actually gone to Qumran and did the measurements himself and found every single one of the locations he was looking for, then he and the Sanhedrin went to the Israeli Archaeology and Antiquities Group and convinced them that they needed to go out and do a scan, a survey of, the, of Qumran, and they did. They went out, they did a, a metal survey, they did, uh, and they found non-ferrous metals, gold, silver, under every single location. But they only dug down about two feet before they buried it up and said, no, there's, no, there's nothing to this. Well, the, the reason they wanted to cover it up, because rumors were starting to spread around Jerusalem at the time, was that Qumran is part of the Palestinian West Bank. Uh -huh. If they dug there, by law, they can't keep anything. Everything they dig on Palestinian land has to go in this military warehouse with a tribunal that includes multiple um, uh, Islamic nations on the tribunal. And basically, they would never see any of it again. Uh -huh. So they basically tried to cover up the story. And that's when they started also talking about single state solution. Because only under a single state solution will they would they be allowed to basically go dig up those treasures in Qumran and actually get to the Ark of Testimony made by Moses. Oh, my God. What a great story. Um, so those are two of the just two of the pieces that that that's where the title comes from. But there's other factual information about AI, AI data poisoning, the solar winds hack, and other Ukraine and other things that basically play into the story. Well, I have to ask you, because all of what you've described so far, it all sounds like the stories would make incredible films and TV series. Have any been picked up? No, um, not yet. In part because I think producers are always looking first to published authors with the major publishing companies, and I've been, I'm an indie publisher. Um, two of my books tend to be a little bit on the long side because I, I build in so many things and so many threads. And any movie, even the even the best movie basically has to cut out like two thirds of the story in order to fit it into a movie time frame. Yeah. That said, The Curse of Cortez did win a semi-finalist for cinematic book um, from Screencraft. Mm. Um, and I'm also in my books, I'm, I'm touching, I'm poking the bear of, of um, science and politics and religion. And, and, and so I'm, it, <laughs> I, I think there's a, there's a, there's a, a desire on the part of either publishers and, and filmmakers to try and avoid controversies. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I'm, I'm basically poking at those controversies in an intentional way to provoke thought and dialogue. Um, mm -hmm. But so I believe that all of them would make amazing movies. Um, uh, I do. I haven't stopped thinking that that might happen. Um, yeah. And don't I, stop I, believing. As the, yeah. No, I think that they would, uh, that they will come out at some point. And the fact that I'm writing about these things typically two or three years before they actually come out in the news, like ChatGPT came out in November 2022, I released Swarm, which was talking about all of this artificial intelligence development back in um, 2020. Uh -huh. So uh, I, I'm a little bit of ahead of the curve because I'm taking what's existing today. I'm looking at the research level and then projecting when that research level will actually hit the the be something that will be hitting the commercial or military market. Well, you yeah. answered my very next question already. So I'm going to throw the questions back to Mary on the next question. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, we, we, we were going to ask you about the, um, the curse of Cortez, but you went into this in detail. So um, I guess Kathy and I are very curious to learn more about your research 
and uncovering the information that you do reveal that, frankly, that you just said, no one really knows yet. So how well, does... Other people, how, somebody knows, other people knows, but just like Dan Brown wrote The Da Vinci uh-huh. Code, there were books, several books about that particular um, thesis of, of, of Mary Magdalene and a child that came out, but they just weren't extremely well read. Um, I read a lot of, uh, of probably within each book, there's probably about six books that go into that book, my book, along with maybe hundreds of different um, articles that I'm researching online. And where I can, for example, with Cortez, I actually was down in the region um, doing on-site research, visiting Mayan ruins, exploring the jungles, talking to really old Mayan shamans uh, about their mythology. (laughs) During one of those trips, I actually had a cartel thug named Shea Golan threaten to kill me. Um, And so um, once I kind of shamed, shamed him and cost him everything he owned, um, I decided to put him in the book and, and shame him again so I can get a twofer in life. Oh, dear. Um, but, but yeah, the, the research, uh, I would love to, one of the things I haven't been able to do as much as I want because of financial restrictions and time and other things is do more travel. But if I talk about a location, I'll create volumes, I'll research volumes in terms of maps, history, um, Google Maps, um, specific restaurants and locations I'll, I'll basically go through as much research as i can so that it's realistic as possible yeah and i've had people come back to me and say oh i've, I've been to that place you nailed it and i'm thinking good because <laughs> you didn't get to go <laughs> i didn't get to go <laughs> well that's really good that's good feedback and i have to ask you do you really believe the world has entered the end times end times and why why well, that you know, I realize that's a really hot top or that's a really sensitive topic for some people. Yeah. Let me tell you how I kind of came to my analysis. Now, I, I, I am a Christian and, and I was I saw I, I was able to get a lot of those teachings early on in the church and started with the whole um, left behind series back in the early 70s. But as an analytical person, there's something that always bothered me about those which was I was able to perceive that in a lot of their interpretation of Alec, first off, they used it to try and predict the future, which I didn't think that was what it was supposed to do, which was why the allegories were sometimes fantastical. And then they would go through and they would try and they would come up with very biased views of what the allegories meant. Right. And I could see religious bias. I could see cultural bias. I could see nationalistic bias. I could see, you know, the Protestants versus the Catholics and the Christians versus the Islam uh, Muslims. And I could see a lot of things that I, I in my mind, I kept thinking we're, we're 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 writing in our own interpretation of what we think we want it to be as opposed to kind of reading it. And I was actually reading a National Geographic article uh, years ago. And the article was talking about the um, rapid loss of fish stocks in all of the fishing grounds around the world, from Asia to Europe to America. And they had actually calculated this loss. And the calculation that they had come up with was around a third of the fish stocks from, and this was sort of pre-World War II kind of era. And I started thinking about that. I said, wait a minute, there's a prophecy about that called the seven trumpets. And in the seven trumpets prophecy in Revelation, it basically says that a flaming rock is going to fall from the sky. And as a result, 
third of the fish of the sea will die, a third of the birds of the air will die, a third of the beasts of land will die, and all of the rivers of the world, three, three quarters of the rivers of the world will be so polluted we won't be able to live. Are you talking about like giant asteroids? Well, what I what struck me at the point was like, well, is that all of those things that occurred, but there was no asteroid. So the allegory was an asteroid, right? But the outcome of the allegory were all of these things where I could I could find factual evidence of in scientific journals since World War II. Uh-huh. And so I said, well, well, what if I start stripping away the allegory, kind of ignoring the allegory a little bit, and which has is prone to bias. And what if I started calculating all of the occurrences where the outcomes had already been documented and occurred? And then at the time I had uh, my background was computer modeling and, and um, regression and economics. And so all of these complex uh, mathematical kind of approaches. I actually went into the office one weekend, a long three-day weekend. And I used, we ha- I was working with an oil company at the time. So we had about a hundred million years of geologic data. And I brought in uh, like a stack of about 40 different National Geographic and other science magazines that had data. And I brought in some history books and I brought in like, I think 15, only 15 prophecies, because that's really all I had the time to do. And I built a regression um, probability model to say, what's the probability of this happening? And then I did a separate model. What's the probability of this happening? What's the probability of this one happening? And starting with the seven trumpet prophecy, I, I went into prophecies about the creation of Israel. And I went into prophecies about nuclear energy and, and global travel and global communications and a number of different things that were somewhat hard to understand up until just the modern modern era. And I then I calculate, well, what's the probability of all of these things occurring and, and against them? So it's basically probability is what's the chance of something happening by random chance, right? So probability is if I flip a coin over enough times, I should get roughly number of heads to, to number of tails, assuming the coin is balanced on all that stuff. So what I got back was after the long weekend, it's like eight o'clock at night or nine o'clock at night. I got to go home and pick up my son and get ready for work the next day. The result was that the probability was one in 1.4 trillion against random chance. Now, my first impression was either my math is wrong or my methodology is way wrong. But then I thought, well, even if I'm off by a factor of 100 or 1,000, that's still an enormously large number. And I said, well, maybe people are looking at prophecies in the wrong way. It's not meant to basically um, predict the future, but to, uh, but to understand the present. And that maybe prophecy is less about how God's going to come and destroy the world as much as how man will kind will evolve to the point where we start destroying ourselves. Mm. And so I started taking different philosophical approaches. It changed my my priorities in my career, changed my priorities in my faith, it changed my, my lifestyle, changed my what I thought was important with my kids and, and with life. And it that was kind of got me thinking. And that was kind of the premise of the book, which is how the program, this, this AI has basically decided that we're in end time prophecies, because it's doing the same sort of mathematical um, calculations against um, outcomes and events. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and so the I can only say that if I were to look purely at the math, it would say, yeah, that sounds like it sounds right. 
it's that we're seeing a much higher correlation than we should expect under any other normal circumstances. And when we step back and we say, well, gee, we're living in a we're living in a time when since each of I each of us have been born, the world has radically changed in ways that have never ever been seen before. Uh, from nuclear technology, global travel, the fact that we're talking to each other at remote locations over this thing, this wireless thing that seemed, nobody seems, you know, this technology, we, uh, astrophysics, um, uh, material science, nanosciences, medical sciences. We're looking at a world that never could have existed at any other time except the world since World War II. And there's so many of those correlations that we have to look. Now, Part of what I try to bring out in the books is I know a lot of people's first thought is, oh, my gosh, this is horrible. But I try to say, well, this is an opportunity. This is good news for a number of reasons. Um, I wanted to ask you that. I, I try to paint the positive, which is I, I, <laughs> the, the, the truth is every medical study any of us have ever read basically concludes the same thing, which is that the death rate is 100 <laughs> percent. We all have an end date, right? Now imagine if, if we knew 10 years in advance or so that, hey, you've got this incurable disease. There's nothing we can do to stop it. You've got 10 years in order to really reevaluate what you think is important in life and, and how you want to really spend your life. And while we kind of do that in our at times, in a way, people who have diseases, people who lose a loved one, there are a number of those kind of triggers that trigger us to really kind of reevaluate our life. This is this is this is another one. I believe that all of these signs were basically put there so that we would start to kind of get out of our head of, you know, we're going to live forever. This is all this is all going to project into the future. Now, if I project AI into the future another 20, 30 years, it actually doesn't look good given some of the changes that we've seen, given some of the autocratic nations that are arising, given their uses of this technology for autocratic means and means of oppression. It, it actually could look worse if we were to basically just keep going on in this direction. Um, but now we have an opportunity as individuals to basically say, what's important to me? What do I really believe? What, what are, not to say what you should believe, but, but if you knew that there was an end, if there, these prophecies were true, what would that do in terms of changing your perspectives on life, changing how you thought about your family and your career and your ambitions and wealth? Um, and these are changes that we, we, could, we could make into positive scenarios. And so I try to paint it as rather than a doom and gloom, you know, everybody's lost and, and nobody's uh -huh. good as an opportunity for my characters to start reevaluating their own lives. Not From your lips. Else. Yeah, that's good. From your lips. That's and Guy, this, yeah. is, this is a real good way to wind up our episode today. I want to ask you kind of what you were saying. What would you like our audience to have as their main takeaway today? Stay curious. The world is the most fascinating world you're ever going to live in. Bar none. End of story period. Stay curious, learn as much as you can, keep an open mind about the lifestyles of those around you, because ultimately that's not important. Go back to your own roots of faith and what you believe life is about and really reevaluate what you think is important in life and, and focus on those things. 
learn as much as you can, make that enrich your life. Part of that might be travel, part of it might be reading, part of it might be learning, might be taking a course. Enrich your life in every way you can and use that to really reevaluate what you think is important in life because the math says you might not, we might not be another generation. And that's okay as long as we're not here to basically build another generation. We're here to basically live the best life that we can now. Thank you. That is wonderful. I love it. Thank you for that great, wise, sage advice. Our guest today on Late Boomers has been Guy Morris, author of three thriller novels, Swarm, The Last Ark, and The Curse of Cortez. Please visit his website, guymorrisbooks.com, to see links to industry reviews and locations in air and sea craft use, and even fact versus fiction pages for each book. I love that. I can't wait to read your books. Thank you, Guy. Thank you so much. We want to remind our listeners also that we now have our own YouTube channel, Late Boomers Podcast. Please subscribe to that. And also please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform so that you don't miss any of our weekly episodes. And please follow us on Instagram at Late Boomers and at I am Kathy Worthington and at I am Mary Elkins. We hope that our episode today entertained and inspired you and lit the path to the life you're meant to live. Thanks again, Guy. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you, Mary. It's been an honor. Thank you for joining us on Late Boomers, the podcast that is your guide to creating a third act with style, power, and impact. Please visit our website and get in touch with us at lateboomers.biz. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes of Late Boomers, go to EWNpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast sites. We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact. <laughs>